Good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. Reading out of Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven, for there is, for their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of God. Please be seated. All right, you can make your way to uh, Luke chapter 6. Be in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, making our way to verse 26 this morning. Let's just take a moment and ask God for his help as we look at his word today. Jesus, we thank you that you're here with us, and God, we thank you that you have given us your word so we can know you and so that you can examine our hearts. We're asking God as we take a few minutes to think about the truth of your word, what it tells us about you and your plan to save sinners like us. God, we pray that you would change us by the power of your spirit. Give us faith to believe. Give us a willingness to repent. Help us, God, even in these moments to turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. The Bible tells us Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. For that reason, this is often called the Sermon on the Plain, as compared with the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, and following. The reason we do that is because, number one, this seems like it's on a flat spot versus a mountain. That's not necessarily the case. So, a uh, little Bible trivia time just to keep you interested or, uh, or may operate as a lullaby for you to go to sleep, either way. Uh, these were either two different sermons that were sermons that were preached, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, and they just had a lot of similar content to them. It wouldn't be unusual for someone like Jesus who went around teaching to teach the same thing in several different places. So it could be that he taught similar stuff in different places over time, or it could be here in Luke, we have Luke sort of reducing and uh, reducing down uh, the content of the Sermon on the Mount and telling us just some of the things he wanted to share from that message. It doesn't really matter to me. It's still the, the same information. Jesus came down, and a great multitude was following him, the Bible tells us there in verse 17, and it was a, a diverse group of people. It was people from Judea from Jerusalem, from Galilee, and it even says here there were people from the seacoast, from Tyre and Sidon. So this was a group of Jews from all over Israel, the north and the south, as well as Gentiles. And it's really, really important to pay attention to because in the book of Luke, Luke is trying to remind us over and over and over again that Jesus is here to take outsiders and make them insiders by faith in him and the work he's gonna do on the cross. 
So we have a, a diverse group of people from all walks of life and backgrounds, and something really interesting was happening before he started teaching. Look at verse 18, if you have it there with, in, in front of you. Uh, they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. I mean, this is a pretty incredible scene going on. Jesus is there. A multitude is around him. People are coming to him with all kinds of different ailments, physical ailments, uh, demonic possession and oppression and, and mental challenges and all kinds of issues. And, and rather than what we see a lot of times throughout the scripture, don't we? People come up to Jesus and there's sort of a conversation and this is different. This is sort of everybody's walking up to Jesus and touching him and they're getting healed. That's pretty incredible. I don't know if anybody was even listening to what he was saying. If I had a, a sore throat, I'd be more concerned about getting up there and getting healed than, than what he was saying. But it was in the midst of this that Jesus communicated some really, really important truths about what it means to follow him. And that's the title of the message today is following Jesus, because look at what it says in verse 20. Uh, Jeff read it. I almost called Jeff Jesus. You know, worse things. You could be called worse things, Jeff. Jesus lifted up his eyes on his, who does it say? Disciples. So he's about to give them information about what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. He's, now, there's a whole multitude there, and he's speaking, though, in specifically to his disciples, which at this point in history is those 12 disciples, yes, but, he, but there was even a larger group of disciples that were sort of also following along. Over the course of his time teaching, the, that group of disciples gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But he's teaching that a group of people, whoever might be in this crowd, that would define themselves as someone who was following Jesus. He says, I want to give you some ways of understanding what it means to follow me. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. So I'm going to answer this in two ways about what it means to follow Jesus. Here are the two questions we want to ask ourselves. Following Jesus, what do you want? And when do you want it? Those are the two questions we're going to answer here from Jesus' words. Following Jesus, what do you want? And when do you want it? So when you think about whether or not you have something you might have ways in which you determine you have something. So if you want to know how much is left on your Starbucks gift card, you will, if you're old school, you do you, you may have to call a 1-800 number on the back of the, of the gift card. I don't know if people, I, didn't, I don't even know if that number goes anywhere. You may take that card to a store and have them run it, or if you're like the rest of planet Earth, you already have put that on the app on your phone. And you just have to open the app and you'll say, I've got $20 in Starbucks gift card. I will go ahead and have a sandwich with my coffee this morning. And that's it. So how do I know what I have? I look at the statement. You might do the same thing with your Amazon account. Log in. I still have gift card going on. I can go ahead and buy this useless item. Then when it gets here, I will have forgotten that I ordered it. I know you have never done that. We're talking about your neighbors. 
You might do the same thing with your money in general. You look at your bank account. You say, okay, I understand how much is in my bank account. So the question is, in relationship to our walk and followership of Jesus, how do we measure if we have what we want? How do we measure that? And Jesus tells us how to measure that. The question is, are you blessed? That's how we measure it. Look what he says. He says it several times, I think three or four times maybe. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are. What does it mean to be blessed? This is a, certainly, you know, in our Bible, it seems like a religious term. Uh, we don't really use blessed that often unless something has happened to you and you're posting on your Instagram page, hashtag blessed but for whatever has happened to you that you find positive about. But the way this term was used back then, it is something you would say to somebody when something somewhat surprising happens and, and you would go, oh man, you got so lucky. Like if somebody were able to, to win a prize at work or, or on a radio call-in show or something, you say, oh man, you got lucky. How'd you get the tickets to that, to that concert? Or if somebody got a promotion at work, you might say, oh man, how fortunate for you and your family. It's, it's something that is, is not merely a theological category. Say, oh, you have experienced blessing of some sort. This term is used of something when something good happens that somebody else is observing and it makes them respond somewhat emotionally. Like if you gave somebody good news and they heard about it, they go, oh man, that is cool. Man, that is great. I can't believe that happened for you. And we share that hoping they will be jealous. That's why we told them. That's, that I, know I, I know what has happened to me is really good. If they're thinking in their mind, man, I wish that happened to me, but it didn't. It happened to this guy. You're so fortunate. You're so lucky, we might even say. That's what he's saying here. Blessed, when these things happen to you and you look at your relationship with Jesus, you go, oh man, this is so great for me. So do you want to look at what those things are? Yeah, here we go. Blessed are you who are poor. Oh man, I'm so lucky. I'm broke. That's what he's saying. It seems like a, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody says blessed. Oh, I'm so, I'm so fortunate to be broke. But that's what he's saying here. We got to look at it. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. You shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep. You will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. So Jesus is saying one of the ways we can evaluate whether or not we have what we want in Jesus, are we experiencing these things? And look what these people are, are missing, these blessed ones. There are really four things that they're, they're missing out on. Let me just explain it. Look at verse, end of verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, in the present tense. All the others are in the future. He says this, blessed are you who are poor, you're actually royalty. So one of the things that the impoverished are experienced that they will one day experience in full is what uh, royalty experiences, which is the ability to be in full control and have full discretion of what's going on in their life. What's difficult for the impoverished is they're always at the whims of whatever's happening. Because no, there's no ability to control what's going on in your life. 
If you don't have money and your car breaks down, you don't have the ability to fix it. It's, or it's really, really challenging to fix it. Whereas somebody who is, has the resources aside, the car can break down, how worried are they? No big deal. They may even say somebody who is wealthy enough, may, car broke down. I'm sick of that car anyway. I'm getting a new one. So that's, that's the ability to exert control into a situation, in this case described in financial terms. And what the Bible says, blessed are you who are poor, someday this situation will be reversed. Right now, though, fortunate are you because you're experiencing this lack of control. Blessed are you who are hungry. One day you will be satisfied. How about those who are weep? One day you will laugh. And then also, finally, one day you will be accepted. So here are four things that, we, that, that God is saying we will have in the kingdom of God. We will have control and power in the kingdom of God one day. We will have satisfaction in the kingdom of God one day. We will have um, laughter and happiness in the kingdom of God one day. And we will have and should have acceptance in the kingdom of God one day. But those in Christ today may not experience those things. In fact, he says, when those things are absent in your life, you can be grateful. That's a sign. That's a barometer. That's an indicator. You will have them. What do you want? Well, I want control, and I want satisfaction, and I want people to accept me, and I want happiness. And Jesus says, yes, you should want those things. And when you don't, you're fortunate, because one day you, you will have them. A couple of things on this. Look, let's look at the first one. Let's look at poverty. There's nothing more fun than examining poverty. Blessed are you who are poor. There's two, way that the, two ways that this is experienced. Poverty is always a, a description of relativity. So no matter how broke you are, give me five minutes, I'll find somebody broker. Your poverty in relationship with the people around you in a different context may in fact be wealth. So poverty in any particular context is always relative to the people around you. And so there's two ways to understand poorness here. Number one, a lack of resource in comparison with the people around you. You say, oh, everybody around me has a whole bunch more and is able to do more than I am able to do. There's another way of experiencing poverty, and that's by looking at what is relative, not to those around me, but to Jesus. So there's two ways we get to experience poorness in this world. Number one, actually be poor. And for some, that's a reality. It's not a pleasant reality. It is a reality that, in fact, in Christ can be a point of joy, but doesn't make it less difficult, right? The other way to experience poorness, even if you're not poor, is to recognize, yeah, you are. That if your hopes and your reliance and your confidence and your ability to be okay is based on the level of your income, then you're saying, no, I'm not poor. But if you're saying, you know what, this stuff, while nice, it's handy, it's helpful, has nothing to do with the reality of my relationship with Jesus, I can recognize that what I have doesn't have as much value as I think it does. That's a person who says, you know what, yeah, the Lord has, has provided for me large amounts of resource in relative comparison to others, but that's not where my identity is. My identity is in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, you can heap up all this stuff in a pile. It's not worth a whole lot, is it? And that's having a reference point of Christ 
in relationship to the resources we have had. So we can look at each of these things and say, where is my satisfaction fully found? Am I happy because my life is happy? Or am I happy because I'm in Christ and one day I will be found in him? The reason this is important, because life ebbs and flows. There are some days where there's times of great happiness and joy, and we, we hope it never changes. And then what happens? Sun down, goes down, sun comes up, and the next day is a day of sadness and grief. So if my identity is found in the temporary happiness of this world, it's always going to be ebbing and flowing. What Jesus is saying, man, you are lucky if your happiness isn't found here, it's found in another place that is yet to come. Look at verse 23. On the day that you find yourself impoverished, unhappy, hungry, and people hating you, some people call that Tuesday, what's our response supposed to be when all these things are happening? Rejoice in that day. Is Jesus crazy here? Has anybody had the worst day ever? You've lost everything. You're unhappy. You're hungry. Everybody's mad at you. And you say, you know, this is a great day for a party. No, nobody says that. So Jesus here is trying to get us to, to turn our heads upside down because the kingdom of God is upside down. He's saying, Be, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. This is exactly how the fallen world treated the prophets of old. This is exactly how Isaiah was treated. This is exactly how Jeremiah was treated and Zechariah who was martyred. This is exactly how the prophets of old were treated. When we find ourselves in the most difficult of circumstances and we want to stay true to the Lord, but it is hard because it is, we're running out of stuff and we're, we're on the edge and we're burned out and we're sad. He's saying, this is the time for rejoicing because there's no greater time to show faith in Christ than when we've reached the end of our rope. One of the reasons this is difficult for us to do is because we tend to assume that when things are bad, things with God are bad. There's a guy in the Bible who had a pretty bad day, several of them, and his name was Job. Have you heard of this guy? He was wealthy, had everything he could ever want. Plenty of kids, plenty of camels, plenty of donkeys. Basically the American dream. The devil decided to incite the Lord against him, and the Lord agreed to it. And so his children were killed, his donkeys were taken, his camels were taken, everything was taken, except his wife. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> Trying to be. I'm sure she had some good attributes. I'm sure there were some great things about her. The one thing, the one line she has in the book of Job is, why don't you curse God and die? I mean, that's, I'm just saying that's her one line in the whole book. Unfortunately, Job has friends, and they come and visit him. And these friends communicate a theology that was very common in the day, and if we're honest, is very common today. The reason bad things are happening to you, Job, is you've sinned. Something's wrong. You've blown it somehow. We don't know how it is. Job, we don't know what the sin is. We know there is sin. Why? Because your life is a train wreck. There is no way a good God would let a good guy have this happen to him. No way. So the, one of the challenges of this kind of suffering that Jesus is describing, which he is saying in some sense, is the common experience of the follower of Jesus. 
is we assume if we are poor and hungry and unhappy and being made fun of and excluded, either something is wrong with me or something is wrong with God, or both. And that's what Job's friends said to Job. And Job made the mistake of saying, no, there's nothing wrong with me, there's something wrong with God. Job's friends made the mistake of saying, there's nothing wrong with God, there's something wrong with you. What was the real thing that was going on here? God does what he wants, and he had his own reasons for doing that. In fact, I think God's comforting words were to Job, if I remember correctly, in the latter part of the passage of the book was this, something to the effect of, gird your loins like a man, I'm about to talk to you, Job. Not exactly comforting words. Where were you when I created mammoth? Oh, that's right, you weren't born. Where were you when I created Leviathan? You can reach out and touch him, Job, with your hand, and you will never do that again. Where were you, Job? Job, if I want to take all your stuff and I want to take your kids and your donkeys and your camels, I'll do that all day long because I'm God, you are not. And it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It doesn't mean something is wrong with me. It just means God has a plan you don't understand. So one of the reasons this kind of suffering that Jesus is describing is difficult is we assume Think about somebody who's had a bad run. Think about, say somebody lost their job. What's the first thing you think about them? Do you think they must have unconfessed sin in their life? No. But you might think this. Now, not you guys, the guys, people who couldn't be here today. Uh, that guy, I knew he was, he's, he's always been kind of lazy. So it's the same thing, isn't it? Because God could never keep somebody lazy in a job. Really? Yes, he could. Has God ever blessed people who don't deserve it? That's, in fact, that's the only kind of people he blesses. So when we make silly statements like, oh, he lost his job because he's lazy, I'm not saying he's not lazy. I'm just saying you don't know everything God is up to here. And when we assume when bad things are happening is because people are bad or because God is bad, we miss the point. This is the normative experience of the Christian life, is either experiencing poverty or being willing by faith to look at what we have and say it isn't that much. The normative experience is to to experience dissatisfaction or to look at the things that do bring satisfaction and be willing to say, you know what, this isn't as good as I think it is. One last thing on this stuff. I know this is kind of random. Deal with it. Um... All of these things in this life are fleeting, aren't they? Now, I'm looking around. A few of you have been around more than a couple of years. Um, That's all I'm going to say. When we experience blessing, whether it be resources or uh, satisfaction in life or a reputation with friends around us, remember, not only are those blessings relative to the people around us, it's also relative to our prior experience. So let's go back to the guy who comes in and says, man, it's so awesome. I just got a promotion. Man, you're so fortunate. You're so blessed and everybody's excited. He may even have everybody over and barbecue some ribs. A year later, is that promotion a blessing or just normal? See, after a while, all the stuff of this world that we get excited about, it takes about 10 minutes and it's just normal. It's no longer exciting. How do we know this is true? What iPhone are we up to? 
Is it, is it 13? Do we have 13 of them? And some of you are like, 14's coming out. <laughs> Got to get that 14. What's different? I have no idea. It's a, it's a rectangle black thing. Because the, the 13, and when we got it, and it has three cameras on the back, oh my goodness. And it blows our mind, and a week later we go, well, now I've done everything with it. That's, that's everything on planet Earth is that way. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you figure that out. And you decide what you want isn't this stuff, and you will keep it in its category. And when we do, experiencing, do experience lack in very real ways, when there isn't enough money to go all the way to the end of the month, and when we do experience hunger, and when we are rejected by people around us because of Jesus, in that moment, in that reality, we can say, there's nothing wrong with me. Jesus saves sinners like me. There's nothing wrong with God. He's always good. I'm going to rejoice because I'm in this spot. Because that's what followers of Jesus do by faith. Following Jesus, what do you want? Next question is, when do you want it? I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I'm not going to say whether or not it's happened in my home. But you're preparing a big meal. Let's say, you know, a weekend meal, maybe like Sunday afternoon. People still call uh, the evening meal on Sunday supper or dinner, lunch, dinner. Say you say, you know what, it's a special day, we're going we're gonna to really go for it, we're going to throw a dead animal on a barbecue for a couple hours, and we're going to really do it up. And you're, you spend a couple hours in the kitchen making this meal, and you're excited about it, right? The entire time you're making this meal, your children are eating Skittles. <laughs> no, I'm not speaking of any, I'm, I'm saying generally. So then the meal is served, this grand meal, which for you is a, your your magnum opus of meals. You have presented charred meat and starches, and you have brought it, and you have crafted it with your hands. And the kids sit down, and they go, I'm kind of full. What do you mean you're full? I've been eating Skittles all day. How could I possibly eat all this meat? And then in re- you become very reasonable at that point. So what do we say? What do we say? when we're preparing this meal? What do we say when we see somebody going into the kitchen? No, no, no. You'll spoil your dinner. That's what we say. You'll spoil your dinner. So the question is not just what do we want? We want to eat. The question is this, according to Jesus, when do you want it? When do you? It's not just what we want. What we want is very clear. We want wealth and control and we want satisfaction and we want happiness and we want acceptance. And these things are fantastic. There is nothing wrong with these things. Jesus then says, when do you want these things? And look what he says. Woe to you who are rich, for today you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The question is not whether or not we should desire these things. The question is, do we want to experience these things in their fullness today where they're temporary, or would we prefer to have these things in the future in the kingdom of God established where they are permanent? 
This isn't even in some ways a moral question. It's just a wisdom question. Any qualified person who will help you plan for your retirement is going to ask you, do you want to spend your money today or do you want to spend it when you're retired? It's a fair question, isn't it? If you want to spend your money today, he'll say, go for it. Don't come crying to me when you're broke in your retirement. That's the whole idea. The question is, do you want to spend it today or do you want to spend it when you are retired and you need it? And Jesus is saying the same thing. Do you want these things, these qualities of life in their fullness as your identity today where they're temporary or do you want to experience these things in their fullness in eternity where they are permanent? And that's the question, yes. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. This is over in the Sermon on the Mount slash plain. Here's what Jesus says there. It's a familiar passage. I'm sure many of you have committed it to memory, but I'll read it nonetheless. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. We'll stop there for a minute. So he's just saying there, this just makes sense. You've got two cars in front of you. One of them spent its entire time in existence, used vehicle, on the coast. It's been in Brookings. How bad do you want that car? Oh, no, it's great. We did the undercoating. It's fine. Okay, so you've sealed the rust in. You have this other car which comes with a guarantee. We will fully repaint your car every year, no charge. Oh, well, that sounds like a good deal. So now I don't have to worry about the finish of my car because it's permanent. That deal doesn't exist as far as I know. Jesus, same thing. Do you want your stuff here where it rots and falls apart? Or do you want the stuff in eternity where it never rusts? It never gets stolen. This isn't a hard question, is it? It's not a hard question. The question is, though, can we actually wait that long? But it, it becomes even more difficult in verse 21. How do we know what we treasure? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where is your treasure? Whatever your heart settles on to say, everything's okay, I've got X. Whatever you might describe in your life says, you know what, everything's fine because I have this or these things. If these things were to go away, I would be ruined. That's where your treasure is. It's not that complicated. It's the thing in which your heart settles on that says, since I have this, everything's fine. Or if I were to lose these things, everything would not be okay. Or maybe it's a, a point of anticipation. Once I have achieved this, I can finally relax a little bit. These are the things, this is how we identify where our treasure is. Jesus is calling us by faith to say, everything's okay because death is not a problem for me. Because I have treasure that will never go away. My heart needs to treasure the kingdom of God that is eternal over and against the treasure here that is temporary. It doesn't mean we have to 
unload everything and dispose of everything, take our homes and empty them into the landfill. He's asking us to look at our heart. That's where we determine where our treasure is. It has nothing to do with our bank account or our assets. It has everything to do with what does my heart say means my life is okay. For those without Christ, we should also remind ourselves, this world is the best it gets. To experience the kingdom of God is to acknowledge that I need my heart made new through the blood of Christ shed for me. And what's great about the kingdom of God, there's no entrance exam and there's no initiation fee. The Bible tells us we receive entrance into the kingdom of God by becoming sons and daughters of the king, by trusting Jesus to forgive us for our sin because he died on the cross and rose from the dead. So for those who are in Christ, we can come to that place and say, you know what, this world does not offer everything that I need. I need something more than what this world has to offer, and that's the Holy Spirit telling you that. The way you get that is to come to Christ in faith and say, I want to participate in your kingdom through forgiveness of my sin. What about those of us who are in Christ? I want you to maximize your income potential. I sound like a retirement planner. Here we go, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. At the end of this, I got a great deal on a fund. No, I'm kidding. I don't. I don't. This is ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. What day is that? I don't know what day it is, but it's the day we stand before the Lord and have a conversation about how life went. Everybody gets to have that conversation. Everybody gets to have that conversation. In Christ, not in Christ. If you're in Christ, that conversation stops with, don't worry about it, you're in. We're good. All right, that's awesome to hear. Next, let's talk about how that went for you. And then a cold bead of sweat goes down the back of your neck. In that day, it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive reward. Yes, good news, you receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be safe, but like one who's jumping through a fire. This is one of the few times in your life you don't want a big bonfire. So God takes the work of our life. This is a, a metaphor. He takes the work of our life, that which was done to the glory of God and for his kingdom will endure forever. That which was done for the glory of us and our kingdom will be burned up. Even if everything is burned up, hey, no worries. We get into heaven not because we work that way. We get into heaven because Jesus dies for sinners like us. The question is, in this day, will we be those who say, I want a really small fire? I want a fire so small you can't even roast a marshmallow on it. Or will we be those who say, you know what, I like this stuff here. If it's burned up, at least I get in. We need to recognize as Christians, those of us who are in Christ, when we set our hearts on treasure here, it will affect our experience of eternity. We will be with Christ forever, but it, we, we would be remiss to pretend that what we do here doesn't matter forever. Do we want to treasure the things of God that last forever, or do we want to treasure our own uh, kingdoms? 1 Samuel chapter 16, this is the occasion where Samuel was sent to anoint 
a king because Saul wasn't working out. Samuel shows up at the house of Jesse. He came to Jesse's oldest, Eliab. And this is what Samuel thought. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, what did he say? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. God sees things different than you and I do. When we get to heaven, I'm just conjecturing here because I haven't been there yet. If I did, I'd write a book and everybody would buy it. Let's just pretend for a minute, when you get to heaven, there's like a hall of fame. Like you go in heaven's hall of fame. That doesn't sound appropriate, but let's go with it. And that's why we're going to go with it, because it's not appropriate. So you walk in. I guarantee you, when you walk into that hall of fame, you won't know any of those people. You'd say, I haven't heard of any of these people. None of those people. All the heavy hitters that you would put in the hall of fame. No problem with those people. Good for them. They swung for the fences. The people in that Hall of Fame, nobody will have heard of. It's faithful parents in the backwoods and that nobody sees just slogging it out for Jesus. It's people saying, I'm going to obey Jesus today. Nobody knows about it. This is the glory of the kingdom of God. The small things, the little things that nobody sees. How many times have you seen the big heavy hitter and you're watching them on TV or listening to them on the radio, you wait six months and all of a sudden they're in the news for reasons we don't like? This is a question of the heart. And the work God is doing in the heart has nothing to do with the appearances on the outside. God sees things differently than we see them. We might look at somebody in their life and say, they're not blessed. And then we get to the kingdom. We walk through the door and we'll go, Oh, man, they were so lucky. Oh, man, I wish I would have been like them. And this is an upside-down kingdom. This is what's cool about it. Well, it may or may not be cool. It depends on your perspective. Some of us have had a, a really hard run, not just for like the last week or the last month or the last year. It's like we woke up, doctor smacked us on our butt, We started crying, and we haven't stopped. And we say, I mean, what good could come from this? And you walk across the threshold of heaven, and we go, oh, man, I was so lucky. Now, sitting here in the suffering and the difficulty of it, we go, no, there's no way. But that's what Jesus does. God sees things different than us. Just because things haven't gone the way we want and they don't seem like they're ever going to go the way they want, in that moment when we say in our heart of hearts, Jesus, I trust you, your will, not my will, let's do this, one more gold brick on the house. Following Jesus, what do you want? Happiness, wealth, power, acceptance. Those things are fantastic. So the question you have to answer is, when do you want those things? A couple of things, we'll close with this. You're welcome. (laughs) 
following Jesus, like I said, maybe you've been on a tough road, and you say, you know what? I'd, I'd take the tough road. The road I got is 10 lanes over from tough. Where is the blessing? Where are the good times? Here's the thing I want you to remember. You're in really, really good company, Jesus says. This is how the prophets of old experienced their life. There isn't something wrong with you. Jesus has just seen fit. You get to walk the rough road. It's not joyful, yet it's not something you would pick. But in that moment, by faith, we say, okay, it's hard. It's painful. I'm going to shed some tears. I'm not going to pretend like I'm happy. But you know what, Lord? If this is the road you gave for me, blessed am I that I get to road, walk the road you have given me. For many of us, though, we're following Jesus, and we find ourselves in really pleasant places. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. Let's look at James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. That helps us a little bit. James says this. It's all a matter of perspective. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. I love that. Guy walks into church. I'm more broke this week than I was last week. Woo! And what would we do? What is wrong with you, man? The rich guy walks in. Oh, so terrible. What happened? What happened? I made another million. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. How am I supposed to follow the Lord with this kind of stuff? That's what he said. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the wealthy in his humiliation because the grass, like the grass, he will pass away. All he's saying here is acknowledging the reality. Now, the, those of us who are broke aren't going to get this. You're going to be annoyed with me. Are you ready? Sorry. I don't know, I don't know if I want to say it now. The Bible makes it clear. In many ways, in the hardness of life, depending on the Lord becomes our default position. Think about it in your own life. Think about those times where everything fell apart. What did your prayer look like during that season? I mean, were you praying like there was no tomorrow because you weren't sure if there was tomorrow? The Bible is saying, man, you were, man, you were so fortunate in that moment. And the Bible is just acknowledging when everything is going well, that's a blessing from God, so we don't want to turn it away per se, but we need to recognize the reality of our fickle hearts and say, okay, God, I need your help here. I need the power of your spirit, maybe in the good times more than in the times of difficulty, because in the times of being flush, my heart is wayward. I don't see how much I need you right now. And, and James is just telling us, those of us who are experiencing the blessing of God in this time, to say, Lord, give me the power of your spirit to recognize, even during times of, of plenty, how much I need you. That's what the Bible calls us to do. Finally, this, and we'll close with this. Following Jesus, what do you want and when do you want it? God isn't holding out on you. God isn't holding out on you. He wants you to experience his power, his satisfaction, his happiness and joy, and his acceptance. He, he's not holding out on you. He's not being an ogre. By his grace, he wants to make sure you have it forever and not just for the moment. And if, if right now he's holding out and saying, I'm going I'm to give that to you later, in this moment by faith, we can say, okay, Lord, that's a real pain. Give me strength to be grateful. It's coming one day in your presence, and it will never, never end. Following Jesus, what do you want, and when do you want it? Jesus, we thank you for your kindness you have shown us. We thank you for the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven because you died for rebels like us. Lord, 
we're asking in this moment for your help. Some of us, in fact, many of us, Lord, are going through very, very challenging and difficult times, and our, the questions are, are continually popping up in our mind. God, where are you in this? Father, I ask in these moments that you would give us the strength to recognize the blessing to know that you will give us our heart's desire, either here or there. Give us the strength to endure to the very end. God, for those of us that you have provided more than is needed, we are grateful, God, for your provision and ask, God, that you by your spirit would guard our hearts, that arrogance and pride wouldn't creep in, and we wouldn't fail to recognize that we need you just as much when things are flush as when things are thin. God, would you make us those who have our hearts set on you that our treasure is Jesus. I pray, God, for those who are here today who don't know you, that in this moment their heart would reach out to you for forgiveness through faith. God, it's for your glory, and we can't wait till you come back. In Jesus' name, amen.